Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books and Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Banu Gokariksel, Michael Hawksons, Christopher Newbert, and Sarah Smith, editors of Feminist Geography Unbound, Discomfort, Bodies, and Prefigured Futures, published this year by West Virginia University Press. Uh, welcome to the show. To start off, why don't you each tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to put together this book? Hi, this is Banu Gokariksal. I'm professor of geography and the Caroline H. and Thomas S. Royster Distinguished Professor for Graduate Education at the Graduate School of University of North Carolina. Uh, my research is about bodies, intimacy, and everyday spaces as key sites of politics and geopolitics. Uh, I situate my work in the fields of geographies of religion and feminist political and cultural geographies. And a lot of my work has been focused on Turkey uh, to study contemporary formation of Muslim femininity during a time when being a Muslim woman was and remains a highly contested geopolitical issue. And more recently, in a series of editorials and articles that include Sarah Smith here, who is one of the co-editors, and Chris Newbert, uh, we have analyzed the embodied, racialized, and gendered politics of po- populist political movements from Trump to Erdogan, as well as feminism and social justice in the U.S. and Europe as well. I've been teaching graduate courses on feminist geography and a new undergraduate course on feminist geography and have been involved in the feminist geography conference that led to the publication of this book. And... Um... My name is Mike Hawkins. I'm the second co-author um, on the book. Uh, I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Geography at UNC Chapel Hill, along with our other uh, co-editors. Um, at the time we were putting the book together, I was working on a master's thesis project about gendered legacies of U.S. militarism um, in Subic Bay, Philippines, which uh, during much of the Cold War was um, one of the biggest overseas U.S. military bases. Um, As we move forward with publication, I wrapped up that project on on sort of the legacies of imperialism and have shifted to a dissertation project for my PhD that looks at uh, labor, infrastructure, and um, historical geographies of the port of Manila in the Philippines. Um, And I am sort of in the middle of of working on that dissertation, which involves both archival work and and ethnographic interviews in the port area of Manila. I'll turn it over to our third co-editor. Okay. Hi, this is Chris. I am also a PhD candidate in our Department of Geography here at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, I'm currently wrapping up my dissertation project. I just completed a two-year ethnography in Fort Dodge, Iowa, which is a small city up in north central Iowa. Um, And I focus mainly on how 
articulations of masculinity and whiteness produce a particular kind of agricultural economy and um, a particular culture that surrounds sort of agriculture in Iowa, but also more broadly in ways that are patterned by race, gender, and sexuality. So I'm excited to be wrapping that up, hopefully within the next year or so. And then I've also published um, on this work and similar work focusing on questions of how affect, emotion, odor, sort of everyday sensation also inform the political subjectivities that are created in um, you know rural American agricultural contexts. So hopefully moving forward, that will lead to further projects. Um, and that's me. I also participated in the Feminist Geography Conference, and that's how this book came about. I think we were all uh, sort of critical parts of that. I will turn it over to Sarah, who I'll also mention is my advisor. Thank you, Chris. I'm Sarah Smith, and I'm an associate professor of geography here at UNC. My work is on the intimate geopolitics of love, babies, and young people. And I've mostly worked on that in the Ladakh region of India, up in the Himalayas. But I also look more broadly at how people do tricks with time to bound territory and claim it through um, the naming and designation of the Anthropocene and through a kind of biopolitics of race work that I've done with Pavitra Vasudevan and Mabel Gergen also. And like the others, I was part of the Feminist Geography Conference back in 2017. Okay, well, it's great to have you all uh, on here. And so... Uh, could you maybe start by telling us a little bit about this conference that led to the creation of this book? How did you go from having a conference to putting out a uh, a book that's a, an edited collection with uh, quite a diversity of different authors in it? Yeah, so as you get familiar with our voices, uh, Mike here. But um, the conference happened in 2017, and you're right in that uh, edit volume is is sort of a direct result of this conference, which we put on in 2017. Um, so I think it, the year before, uh, May 2017, um, many of us with an interest in feminist geographies and sort of a mandate for thinking about how we could expand them within our own department, um, we had had a seminar, I think, offered by Banu, where uh, a group of us graduate students had, had developed some of these interests. And um, not that the conference came out of this seminar, but from just an interest in conversations amongst ourselves to say, you know, why not Chapel Hill? Why can't we have a feminist geographies conference here? Um, it had built on a first feminist geographies conference, which was held at the University of Nebraska Omaha that I think Sarah attended. So that was in part the inspiration. Um, I'll let others jump in here, but we just, again, sort of a year in advance began thinking about hosting this conference, um, got some support from our college, from our department to make it happen. And then um, I think to much of our surprise, we you know sent out a call for papers. It was met with uh, sort of resounding interest among the geography community and other disciplines. Um, and then, yeah, led to the conference that then led to the book. Great. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll uh, join as well uh, in responding to that question. So as Mike mentioned, uh, there was a, uh, a group of people, a group of us uh, at UNC Chapel uh, Chapel Hill in geography, working on feminist geography. Arthur Cravey uh, is one of those people who came before us and really paved the way for feminist geography to grow uh, in that environment. And um, 
among faculty and graduate students, there's a lot of interest in feminist geography. So several people actually, including Sarah Smith, had gone to the Nebraska Feminist Geography Conference. And during the conference, we just uh, took note of uh, note of uh, papers that we found really interesting. And we also wanted to, to include a diversity of scholars uh, that were junior scholars that we found really promising and making really great interventions in feminist geography, bringing in uh, critical race theory, talking, you know, thinking through black feminism, indigenous feminism, uh, trans issues. HB2 uh, was actually passed during the time of this, uh, this conference. And we had several, and the Muslim ban, Trump's Muslim ban. So we had actually, it was a moment when... Um, People who were interested in coming to the conference could not come or did not want to come because of HB2 uh, in North Carolina instituting uh, bathroom, basically bathroom, um, I don't know how to describe it, like requiring people who were assigned uh, requiring people to go to the bathrooms that they were, uh, that were I, I cannot talk. <laughs> we might have to edit this part out. <laughs> How to explain yeah, so HB2. <laughs> using the bathroom that corresponds with their sex yeah, exactly. assigned, assigned yeah. at birth. Yes, perfect. Thank you. Um, and also Muslim ban. You know, we had uh, several people in actually sessions that I was organizing who could not come because they were coming from Muslim majority countries that were on the, the ban list and could not get visas and other people who were just scared. And, and who also wanted to make a political statement in protest. So, so we also wanted to feature a discussion um, about these issues in the book. Another, uh, another uh, point that we really wanted to highlight was how there, was, there were at several universities across North America and also in other places, there were feminist geography collectives that were forming. And this was um, led by Carolyn Feria, who organized a special session at the conference uh, that was called Calling All Collectives, where feminist geography collectives uh, came to tell us about the work that they were doing in terms of uh, academic knowledge production, but also in terms of responding to the political climate. So we wanted the book to to feature all of those different kind of theoretical political interventions that feminist geographers were were engaging that we saw happen at the conference and reflect those in the book. Okay. And yeah, I think that's an interesting aspect of the book is that in addition to the kind of traditional single authored uh, chapters, you worked with these feminist geography collective. So uh, maybe one of you could tell our listeners if they're not familiar uh, with these collectives, you know, kind of what does that mean? How do these uh, groups work? And, you know, how is that different from the standard way of uh, doing research and scholarship in academia? Yeah, Sarah, go ahead. I can speak a little bit to that one. This is Sarah, and then maybe others can pick up. I think one of the things that was neat about the Calling All Collective session was that 
each of the collectives is kind of quite different and rooted in the context it's coming from. So that there's a way that for us, we're all part of this feminist collective flock, including several folks who um, aren't here. And so our collective was very much the shape our collective took, I think, was determined by the fact that we're at an institution really thoroughly um, defined by uh, history and presence of white supremacy. So we couldn't really separate out our understanding of ourselves as feminists from the fact that we were on a campus with a Confederate monument and all the ways that that was just one sign of how white supremacy and patriarchy dominated our campus. So I think, for instance, then, our collective was really shaped by the ways we were sort of motivated to respond to that, to being in a building named for somebody from the Ku Klux Klan and participating in student protests around that. So that sort of shaped our identity. And then there were other collectives like the one at UT Austin uh, with Carolyn Feria and Annie Elledge and others, where they were really thinking about in some ways how to how to center feminist geography and geographers when they often get marginalized or made invisible, like how to help folks navigate academic worlds, but also um, kind of adhere to feminist principles. So it's interesting the way different, um, the feminist coven at University of Kentucky, we're talking about how to support one another and kind of like maintain kind of witchy spaces in the academy. So it's interesting how each collective sort of took on a, its own shape, depending on the needs of its members. I, I think Mike or Chris or Banu could add to this. Um, I'll just jump in uh, just to, and you know this, again, speaking from the perspective of the collective that we formed here at UNC, but I do think this is something that was common among all of the collectives that I think is important to just, you know, why the reasons that people form collectives in the first place is to create sort of a space where you can have conversations about feminism in geography that are not always encouraged by departments or by uh, the academy in general, you know, places where people can come together and actually uh, think through these ideas, um, think through how we can apply these ideas, not just to our own research, to our own discipline, but also like in our everyday lives, in the campuses that we have to live and work on. Um, collectives have become a very important space uh, for people to come together and actually feel supported and feel like they can do this work, even though it's it it's always going to be difficult to make these sort of interventions, right? But these sort of interventions are made just a little bit less difficult if you know that there are going to be a group of people that um, sort of have your back in these situations. When you're asking very difficult and pointed questions of long-established academic traditions. Okay, that's you're making me want to uh, assemble a collective like this at my own institution. Um, so now moving into talking about some of the content of the book, uh, in your introduction, you kind of position it as a critique of what you call comfort feminism. And so could you talk about what you mean by uh, that idea of comfort feminism? And then also, what is the value that you see in discomfort? Um, I'll sort of get us started here, but in talking of the spirit of collectives, um, I think the way we want to answer these questions is to, to interrupt one another or, or get started and then let someone else answer uh, some of these denser kind of theoretical questions. But um, in part, kind of as we were planning the conference and putting it on, you're right, 
this idea of comfort and discomfort was something that we talked about, again, in our seminars, in this collective we had formed amongst ourselves of graduate students and faculty members. Um, and it became a, a central theme of the conference itself, as I think we lay out in the introduction. And, and um, I think the genealogy, many of us were reading Sarah Ahmed at the time. Um, so some of the ideas come from her. Uh, Kumi Silva, who was featured prominently in the book, also kind of centered some of these ideas in a, a keynote she gave at the conference. Um, and kind of one of the central questions we asked in writing that, that introduction and thinking about it um, is just how comfort and discomfort are unevenly distributed uh, amongst people, um, you know, along sort of social difference. Um, and right, a, a central idea, I think a quote we have in the book is the idea in this introduction that um, comforts pro- proliferate at the ex- expense of others. So, you know, as certain bodies feel comfort, that comfort is uh, produced by the discomfort of others, right, along racialized, gendered um, lines of location, citizenship, and I'm going to sort of compel one of my co-authors to jump in at this point. This is uh, Banu speaking. Um, so comfort feminism, uh, by, by that we, we are referring to white liberal feminism that usually ends up supporting uh, a version of feminism that can easily be co-opted by capitalist, nationalist, kind of racist narratives and projects. And there's a lot of lean into feminism that we see, you know, that turns uh, everything into hollowed out versions of what feminism can be. And in and in thinking about comfort feminism, we also were building on our own experience of occupying places of discomfort in the institutional spaces that we are in. Sarah already mentioned how uh, the building that our department is located in uh, was named after a KKK um, leader. And sitting in faculty meetings often felt for me very uncomfortable. And and it was just this kind of the the culture that was prevalent at that institution in the spaces of the AEG conference, in, uh, in other places, there were, we had to seek out actually places where we could actually find other people like us. So in thinking about comfort feminism, we were also, um, we were also reflecting on those moments that we, when we felt uncomfortable and what that meant for us, for our place in the discipline, in the institutions that we're located, located in, and to think about um, how we can, instead of, instead of brushing them under the rug, right, sweeping them under the rug, really dwelling on those moments of discomfort and what they reveal to us about uh, gender normativity, about racism in society, about these institution, institutionalized forms of power, and how we can identify those workings so that we can intervene in them, we can change, we can enact change to, um, in those systems of power as well. Okay, and uh, Christopher, Sarah, do you have anything you'd like to add? Um, go ahead, Sarah. I, I was just going to add something really quickly, just to note that I also think one of the 
elements of discomfort that came in with thinking about our relationship as academics to the communities that we live and work in. So I remember Latoya Eves in her panel comments also talking about the ways that we can sometimes become too comfortable kind of behind the computer, looking out at the world and not be out there kind of uncomfortably engaging with the folks that we live in, work among. And I was just going to add, um, you know, kind of reflecting on the interview that Kumi Silva gave for the book that uh, for her discomfort is something that is very productive, that the longer we sit with discomfort, the more we understand the complexities of the way the world sort of functions on, you know, our own bodies, how the way these structures sort of inflect and create, um, you know, societies of oppression in very specific and not generalizable ways. You know, I think it, for her, again, this idea of comfort feminism is all about creating this sort of general space where everyone is affected in the same way. So that even, you know, anger is a source of comfort in a certain way because it's all directed toward one particular entity. But there's really, you know, even in an emotion like anger, there's a lot of reasons that people are coming to that and the reasons that um, people are reacting to that and responding to it uh, with some sort of, you know, generalizability. Um overlooks a lot of discomfort. So, you know, for her sitting with discomfort and thinking about, you know, what is actually going on in the world is also a way to develop more nuanced understandings of, of patterns in that reflection and also avoids, you know, the drive to say, well, we have to have a solution to this and we have to have it right now. It's like, no, we need to sit with what is going on if we truly want to understand what is happening. Okay. And I think that actually leads pretty nicely uh, into my next question, which is about the idea of embodiment, uh, which is another major theme in the book. And it's something that has been uh, you know, a, a topic in feminist geography for a long time. I remember talking about it when I took a feminist geography course almost two decades ago in grad school. Uh, so what new directions do you see uh, for thinking about embodiment and, and how is this, this concept uh, productive of new uh, ideas in your book? Yeah, Sarah, go ahead. So I think I love what you're saying because I agree that um, embodiment has been so central to how feminist geographers have conceived of the world. But I think one thing that we're trying to do in this book is we've been lucky to work with contributors who are reaching beyond geography and thinking about the ways that feminist geography hasn't accounted for indigenous feminism or for black feminism and the way that there's always been elements of embodied feminism in that work. But then it's kind of at times, and I don't want to like blanket all feminist geography here, but at times um, feminist geography has also not been attentive to other ways of understanding embodiment or engaging beyond the discipline. We've kind of had a discovery narrative of, look, politics is embodied, but that's actually going way, way back to like Combahee River collective statement and so on and so forth. So folks like Tia Simone Gardner, um, she's drawing on black feminism and bell hooks and also more, uh, more 
kind of ongoing scholarship like that of McKittrick to think about how we can have humanly workable geographies. And then she's really giving us this lived embodied experience of that through her own um, explanation of her life as a Black woman in Minnesota, making her own tiny house. So we're hoping that uh, feminist geography can be a little more um, expansive and engage beyond the discipline. So similarly, Melanie Yazzie and Andrew Curley are thinking about indigenous feminism and the way that gender has always been tied up with questions of colonization. And so as we move forward in feminist geography, we hope that we can be um, like listen more um, to things happening outside the discipline and sort of learn from those uh, forms of knowledge making. Yeah, I always love to hear about uh, trying to make connections that go beyond uh, the discipline. I feel like that's one of the great things about geography is that it it sits at the intersection of so many things, and there's so much opportunity for for those kind of connections. And you know, you've got the word "unbound" in your title, uh, so it's it's nice to see things uh, you know working in that uh, direction. But I don't want to. If anyone else wanted to jump in on the, the question of embodiment. I don't want to cut you off there. No, I think uh, Sarah highlighted the main points of that section uh, really well. This is Banu. Uh, and uh, the two, I think the contrib- the main contribution that that, that part makes is a much more explicit engagement with uh, indigenous uh, feminism and decolonial kind of ways of thinking about gender. Um, so, and, and black fe- engaging with black feminism. Uh, so I think those are opening up new uh, theoretical, but also empirical um, avenues for thinking about bodies, not only as gendered, but also shaped by these histories of colonialism and as and as part of alternative ways of thinking about the world and world-making practices and connecting with one another. So I think all of those are um really important conversations to have and that are already happening and the book uh, wanted to highlight highlight some of those conversations okay and actually your reference to world making practices i think then is a nice segue into talking about the the third you know kind of section the third uh part of your subtitle there um where you're talking about prefiguring the future so how do some of the ideas that uh that come up in this book help us to to prefigure the future um, Mike here, maybe I'll take a quick stab at this one. Um, and so, yeah, this is kind of the third subsection of the book and probably also important to point out that um, it was the chapters that kind of led to these three sections and these three ideas. So um, the three chapters from our, our book authors that helped us think about um, what we labeled temporality and feminist futures, which does become this final third of the book, um, were Anusha Hariharan. Uh, Sophia Zaragoza and, and Brie Gager, who at the when they wrote their chapters were all graduate students um, in various places. And maybe I can answer the question by sort of referring to what their work does. So Anusha's chapter is looking at um, a Dalit feminist women's movement in India. And she was helping to build a, a sort of digital archive of the feminist movement in India. 
um, in decades past. And the way she framed her chapter was about how, right, in the sense of how we think of an archive of the past informing future activism and, and these women that she was working with articulated the desire to um, remember some of their past actions, their past political movements, um, specifically in the context of inspiring a new generation. So we used Anusha's chapter to think about how, right, the past is and the present are always determining the future political sort of endeavors that we seek to achieve. Um, Sophia's chapter was uh, about her sort of sometimes difficult position um, as what she calls a transloca. So someone who's moving between American and Ecuadorian um, academic spaces in, in geography departments. Um, and thinking about how translation works for theoretical concepts and doesn't. Um, in her chapter, she's thinking through how to bring theory from the U.S. to Ecuador, how theory from Ecuador infor informs her uh, academic experiences in the U.S., and really thinking about if she's trying to build a future geography that um, bridges those two worlds, what does that look like? Um, Brie Gager's chapter was about, similar to Anusha's, um, she interviewed uh, scholars, women who were involved in the discipline of planning in the 70s and 80s. Um, and her chapter is interesting, and, and she kind of frames the actions these scholars were taking um, as tactics. So the specific hiring practices or sharing of syllabus among women planners in the 70s and 80s with the intention of, again, making planning more inclusive making planning attentive to gendered issues. Um, so we took those three uh, and really just thought about how, right, political movements are often oriented towards the future, um, but that is that is shaped by uh, both the past and the present. Yeah, and I think the only thing that I would jump in and add to that is that um, one of the important things that ties all of these chapters together, but also just in terms of thinking about um, what it, means to prefigure the future is that we uh, have to be engaged in the process of creating the future in the present, um, you know, sort of based on lessons and reflections that we have from the past, that we can't wait for the future to come to us. We have to be engaged in, in this moment right now in creating the world that we want to see. Okay. Well, hopefully people will check out the book and uh, be, be inspired to be part of that, uh, that kind of project. So I want to change gears a little bit now. And uh, so of the four of you that edited this book, we've got two of you who are graduate students and two of you are established faculty members. So what has the experience been like of working on a team with people crossing these different uh, career stages? We'll let uh, Chris or Mike get started. Um, I, yeah, so I'll just say, you know, for, I think for obviously for both Mike and I, this was our first, uh, book project. So in that sense, it was a tremendous, um, experience in terms of learning how to work with other authors, learning how to be a good editor, which I think certainly has improved my own writing just in, in that sense. Um, when you, you know, read 14 different chapters, um, very deeply several times, you do get a sense for, you know, how other people write, how I feel like I should be writing. Um, and then, you know, more broadly in terms of thinking how you put a project like this together, I, I think we all brought in just very unique perspectives that together as a whole created something that um, 
is is really interesting. And you know, this book would have looked very different if it had been a combination of four different people, obviously. Um, but in terms of learning, you know, among the four of us, what our strengths are, what we can do, how we can contribute, how we can collaborate and how we can like do a project like this and still remain colleagues who uh, appreciate and enjoy one another's company. Like that is, um, you know, a, a tremendous thing to be able to experience at this stage in my career. Yeah. And maybe for solidarity purposes of speaking along with my fellow graduate student here, um, yeah, I, you know, the book was enjoyable to work on. Um, I think, you know, Chris and I enjoyed what we did together. And then also just learning from um, our faculty mentors, Banu and Sarah here. Um, and, I, you know, what we addressed in the introduction, um, all of our chapter contributors were junior scholars, either graduate students or, um, you know, within their first few years of being faculty when they wrote their chapters so, I mean, if any of them are listening right now, they may tell a very different story of this and, um, you know, have been annoyed with all of the drafts that we sent back to them. But I think, you know, if they were to be on this podcast, they would say that despite the annoyances and, and all the edits we asked for them, I think the chapters all obviously became much stronger through the revisions. And for me personally, like Chris said, you know, it taught me how to write by helping some of my graduate student colleagues to strengthen their chapters um, and it was a long process, you know, from 2017, when we did the conference to official publication in early 2021, um, it did take some time to get there, but, um, you know, those revisions and seeing our, um, you know, faculty mentors, how they provided edits, you know, telling us here's what's important to help an argument develop. Um, you know, like Chris said, it definitely helped me to learn how to write as I was providing feedback to some of our colleagues. And Banu or Sarah, do you want to talk about from the, the faculty point of view what the uh, process was like working with grad students as co-editors and then, uh, you know, as Mike said, a lot of grad student and very early career authors that were contributing? Hi, this is Banu. And I, it was a very rewarding experience for me. And Mike and Chris are uh, such amazing scholars. Like it, it really didn't feel to me like I was working with, you know, graduate students or my, my mentees. And they were really, um, really good readers, editors, and we collaborated uh, really well, worked together really well. Our meetings were really fun, too. They were stimulating intellectually, but also full of laughter. And uh, we had we got to know each other really well over the time. And, and Sarah is always a pleasure to work with Sarah. So I actually I'm, I, I will miss those meetings and working with this group of people once, you know, since this book is done now. And and also similarly with the authors, um, it was really great to engage with them, work with them, read closely uh, their work and think through the arguments that they were making, think of ways to, to bring their interventions to the forefront more. So it was also a great experience overall. And, and as I tweeted about this book earlier, the best, the best part about the book was to establish these relationships with this group of amazing feminist geographers over the four years that we worked on the book. So it, it was a really rewarding experience for me. 
I don't okay, and Sarah, okay. I saw your hand up there. I don't have so much um, to add. Just to say, I can't really imagine this job unless I was collaborating with grad students. That they're just my favorite. <laughs> These two, especially. Um, so it was just really delightful to get to work with um, Chris and Mike, and then also to. We already kind of knew how we worked together from working together on the conference, and then also. The junior scholars like Anusha and Pavi and Sophia and Tia Simone, like all of them, um, it was so nice to work with them. And I feel like the fear as somebody who's been faculty for this terrifying, like now more than a decade, is that you get kind of stayed and you're that person who has the same syllabus every year. Um, and I feel like working with grad students and seeing who, who folks are excited to read and cite in the scholarship and the ideas that they have really helps me, um, I don't know, just stay alive <laughs> in this profession, <laughs> which can be a, a daunting one. So I'm just really grateful for the folks that I've gotten to work with. I feel so lucky. All right. Uh, so a couple of you mentioned the fact that this was you know, a four-year project from when you conceived the book till now when it came out. And when you were describing the origins of the book, you, know, you, you located it in a very particular historical and political moment with things like the Women's March on Washington and the um, Muslim travel ban uh, that were happening at the beginning of the Trump administration. And now when the book is finally coming out, we're in the early days of the Biden administration. So do you think that the resonance of the ideas in the book has changed at all with the change in who occupies the White House? Um, I'll just jump in quick. Um, I, I think that, it, you know, one thing is it, always important to remember is that a lot of the things that led to Trumpism in the first place don't disappear simply because somebody in the White House is different. Um, and in that sense, you know, just sort of as a historical record, uh, this book and the moment that it was created in um, is always going to serve as a an important reminder of what exactly that moment in 2017 felt like. I mean, just the palpable fear that could be felt in some of the rooms at the Feminist Geography Conference, even as it was, you know, also a space of, you know, something that felt like it was very outside of that other world. Um, so it was both a space of fear, but also a space of hope and possibility where people were coming together and saying, well, we can imagine our way out of this and we know it's going to be hard and it's going to take a lot of work, um, which, you know, in this particular moment is still true. You know, there is still a lot of work to be done. Um, you know, just as feminism doesn't fade away when it, you know, it, you know, has to sort of be in a more oppositional mode during four years during the Trump administration, you know, Trumpism also doesn't going, isn't going to go away. These are things that we're going to have to continue to struggle with, not just for the next four years or eight years. Um, but for a very, very long time. And in that sense, you know, I think we hope that this book provides readers with a sense of how others have done this um, in different geographies, how people have resisted all over the world, and also, you know, provides a way to move forward, provides a way to continue to sort of challenge these dominant structures of domination, um, which continue to exist. You know, U.S. imperialism is still alive and well, maybe even more so than it was now that it can fully function. Uh, so these are things that we're going to have to continue to think about and challenge and, you know, bump up against over and over again. 
I also wanted to ask about the cover image on this book, because uh, it's a really striking piece of art. Uh, and I'll, I'll try to describe it for the audio listeners, but I also encourage you to look up the book and you know, so you can see what I'm uh, talking about here. So it's by Saba Taj, who is an artist based in Durham, North Carolina. And so the image, there's a, a central figure with this really expansive uh, dress or skirt that kind of fades off into this red kind of cloud or mist. And then uh, this figure has uh five different arms it's kind of like, like a collage style uh, art here and then a chicken's head then there's a, a second figure in the picture kind of leaning in behind with the, both a human face and a shark head and then when you flip the book around to the back the uh, image kind of wraps around and there's this big kind of blue tidal wave uh coming at them. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how this image got selected and uh, how it relates to the, the themes of the book. Because I can certainly, you know, looking at this, it certainly, uh, you know, feels unbound. Um, but I was hoping you could say a little more about, um, you know, what this, what this image means to the book. Yeah, Banu. Uh Thanks. I'm so glad uh, you found you you actually brought up the the book cover. Uh, we just love the the work of Sabotage, and also how uh, West Virginia University Press has done an amazing job with the cover. Uh, we are very excited about it, and and we we think that it does reflect the the content of the the book really well. Sabotage is a visual artist uh, who is based in Durham, North Carolina. It's actually the, the town where I live, just 20 minutes away from Chapel Hill. And uh, she, she is a, a queer uh, Muslim artist who uses a lot of uh, different kinds of Islamic motives. And this image is from her Monsters series that is inspired by Islamic cosmologies and speculative fiction. And it's, it, it is about magical realism to imagine what she calls miraculous possibilities in the face of struggle. So we thought the series, through its combination of, of these uh, different kinds of images, did a great job of opening up new ways to think about the human body um, and, um, and different, different kind of combi combinations of, uh, of, of beings and worlds and lives. And so we thought it fit it fit really well uh, with the themes of the book. Uh, that's that's why we gravi gravitated uh, towards Sabotage's work. And when we contacted her, she was also very generous, very supportive, and uh, was an amazing person to to work with. And uh, and her feminist stand was also quite appealing to us. So we were excited to be able to to feature her work on the cover of, of our book. Yeah, it is a, a really interesting uh, image and definitely stands out from a lot of academic books with really you know boring or stock photo kind of uh, covers. So listeners should take a look at that and then look up Sabotage as well and see some of her other uh, art. 
Okay, so I think to wrap up now, uh, I'd like to ask each of you what you're working on next. What are your projects that are coming up now that this book is finished and uh, out for the public? Should we just go through in uh, the order you're on the cover there? Banu, you want to say something about your next project? Sure. So <laughs> we will maybe go in uh, order of... of the most junior to the senior and as the most junior among our four co-editors. Um, I'm currently working on uh, my dissertation. I have two dear uh, faculty members who are on my committee, so I won't lie to them. I am, in fact, writing my dissertation, um, which is a historical and ethnographic analysis of the port of Manila in the Philippines, kind of centering questions of labor, um, American colonization in the Philippines, uh, the Philippines' geopolitical role in Cold War Southeast Asia, um, and kind of contemporary capitalism, all narrated through the port of Manila, uh, dock workers, truck drivers. Um, I was interviewing them kind of before uh, the pandemic sent me unexpectedly from, from Manila back to the U.S. Um, so, yeah, the current project for me is a big one. It is my uh, dissertation. All right. This is Chris. I think I will um, jump in here quick. So I'm, you know, also sort of in a stage similar to where Mike is. I'm wrapping up my dissertation. Um, I will say, you know, going through this book project has, um, you know, certainly, I think, prepared me to actually go out and do this again on my own, which is exciting. Um, I do have ideas for, uh, you know, transforming my dissertation into a book project that would look at um, white mythologies within agriculture and specifically uh, rural U.S. agriculture and how those mythologies sort of circulate and prop up this uh, neoliberal market-oriented form of agriculture, which has widespread sort of economic, social consequences, not just for um, you know, particular places like North Central Iowa or even the Midwest more broadly, um, but has global implications. You know, we, we look at the protests going on in India right now where farmers there are receiving are the recipient of a lot of the same sort of discourses and ideas and plans that uh, transformed uh, U.S. agriculture very recently. Um, and, you know, I certainly uh, in my work, um, I center those plans pretty clearly as originating within, you know, white supremacy um, and heterosexual patriarchy. So, you know, moving forward, uh, getting that project out to a broader audience is probably my next, you know, major career goal, along with the, the regular academic career goals of finding a job and, and continuing to publish regularly and often. <laughs> All right. Um, so I'll, I'll go next because we've laid out this like... <laughs> leading up to Banu as our senior colleague narrative here. So um, I'm continuing my work with Mabel Gerken with young people from the Indian Himalaya who are studying outside of that region and the ways that they come to understand themselves, India, and the places that they're from. So Mabel and I are continuing to work on that. And then I have sort of a chaotic cluster of collaborations. Um, I guess one of the ones I'm excited about now, Chris is also involved with, as well as Laura Lukaba, Pallavi Gupta, and Andrew Curley. We're looking at ways that um, Black studies and Indigenous studies can speak to one another. And then I'm also thinking about um, 
ways that the future is figured through questions around the Anthropocene. And in general, I'm pursuing these questions of how do we do kind of tricks with territory and time. Yes, lots of collaborations. So um, this is Banu, and I am working on a book tentatively titled The Neighbor Who Might Kill You, Encounter and Difference in Urban Turkey. This book is primarily concerned with how gender, sectarian, ethnic, and national differences are viscerally experienced and produced by ordinary people in the polarizing political environments of cities across Turkey. And this is a collaboration as well with uh, my long-term collaborator, Anna Sikor, who is now at, uh, in the geography department at Durham University. And based on um, the book is based on the, the, the research that we did um, between 2013 and 2016 in, in Turkey. I also have a second project uh, that is about displaced people and refugees. I became interested in this topic when millions of Syrians arrived in Turkey seeking refuge and when I started to direct uh, the Duke University Middle East and Europe program in Berlin. And this project aims to develop feminist perspectives on the coloniality of global asylum and refugee governance and critically analyze border regimes, territorialization and security processes. I'm working with a group of my current and former doctoral students uh, in organizing, we together organized a virtual conference last fall called Unsettling Borders. And you can find out more information about this conference on the conference website, Unsettling Borders. Uh, this conference explored how refugee experiences provide insights into the production of different boundaries and borders by unsettling established understandings of identity, statehood, and territory. We are also organizing sessions at the AEG, and we'll see where all of that goes after that. I'm also working with Kristen Shank and Negar Elodi Pesadi uh, on a special issue of political geography uh, called... Um, Political Geographies of Muslim Femininities. And this is uh, the core of the special issue or themed section of the journal Political Geography is also based on the feminist geography conference presentations, the sessions that we organized for that conference. But then some papers did not work out. Some papers were added later. So we are actually final wrapping that up as well, finalizing that special issue. So I think the book went faster than that special issue did, but we are excited to see come to fruition. Just this morning, we were trying to finalize our introduction for that theme section. So that's another project that I'm working on. Okay, those all sound like really exciting projects. And if some books come out of any of them, we'd love to have you back on the show. Uh, so thank you all so much for coming on and speaking to us. Uh, so listeners, you just heard a conversation with Banu Gokariksal, Michael Hawkins, Christopher Newbert, and Sarah Smith, who are editors of Feminist Geography Unbound, Discomfort, Bodies, and Prefigured Futures, published this year by West Virginia University Press.